Aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Hey, welcome to the 42nd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the wicked MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever I'm thinking of. And today, I'm bringing to my virtual studio the one and only Nicole Auerbach, the Athletic's fantastic senior college football and basketball writer. Nicole is currently deep, 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 deep into March Madness. So I want to go deep, 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 deep into March Madness, too. We're going to talk covering college basketball, how to dig up the little nuggets when 500 other journalists are seeking out those exact same nuggets. We'll also get into some of Nicole's past work, including an absolutely amazing piece about a college football player and his Craigslist purchase cat. So, hey, let's get going right now on Two Riders Slinging Yank. All right, so, Nicole, first of all, uh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. You are... um. How does it feel to be in uh, in Detroit in winter? Is it good? Yeah, I mean, I went to Michigan for four years, so I knew that um, it was worthless to check the weather, and it was probably going to change every day. So I see the sun, which is a rarity for Michigan in March. So I will take it for now. So you're uh, we're recording this the day before really March Madness begins, and I'm I'm fascinated by March Madness. I, I covered a few of them back in the day, but it's been a while because I hate covering big events. I hate, I like, I hate covering big events because I always get anxious and I always feel like there's a million people looking for that little nugget. And every year I feel like the number of reporters doubles and there are 2 million people looking for that nugget and the access isn't as great as you would want and blah, blah, blah. I want, do you, do you enjoy the big events? Do you get, do you get up for the big events or are you preferring, you know, DePaul, Notre Dame, three months earlier? That's a good question, um, because I love the tournament. And I especially love the early rounds, partially because it's the best of both worlds in what you're talking about. Because all the reporters are scattered at eight different sites. And you could luck into it. Like, I've always worked places. I worked for USA Today for six years and now The Athletic. And I've always worked at places that assigned sites before you knew the matchups. Like for the most part, if there if there was Kentucky, um, when Kentucky was undefeated, although I kind of you kind of knew where they were going to go, so I just picked my travel based on where they were going to be. Um, but for the most part, it's like you you don't know you don't know if you're going to have the big stories, you don't know what upsets you're going to have at your site, and so um, I like that because a there's maybe not as much competition for certain stories or different deadlines will present different opportunities and also there's still that open locker room for a half hour there's still you could still grab people in the hallway um you know when you have like regional finals and the final four and and conference championships you have all that time on the court afterwards when people are celebrating and family members there um so i like it and i've always enjoyed the challenge of trying to find that little tidbit or anecdote or story that no one else gets and like one of the most rewarding feelings i've had in the profession is getting that and then especially when like i I remember i got a great uh a fun little story from notre dame a couple years ago and i got it like as the locker room was closing and they were going to the sweet 16 and i just knew that for the next five days no one else would be able to talk to the players about the topic that i had just talked to them about wait what was Um, it i don't want to interrupt you but what was it well, so this was just super offbeat and, and funny, but like I had done a fair amount. This is like Notre Dame. I believe it was the first year that they went on their little run to the Elite Eight um, and they were in Brooklyn. And so I had them. I, I think if I have this right and I could have the year wrong, this was also the same site when Stephen F. Austin beat um, West Virginia. I had a little I had a really good stretch there because mm-hmm. when I was in Stephen F. Austin's locker room, I ended up stumbling into and finding a story on a player who had been like in a near death car crash um, and talking to him about that. So we had that story as well. And then Notre Dame's was totally goofy. I was just talking to the assistant coaches there and found out that Zach August, one of their star players was the team's barber. And like, it was pretty serious. Like he cut everyone's hair the night before games, but like to the point where he had like his own barber kit 
and they got him like a little barber jacket and like it was this whole thing um and it was just this fun offbeat story that i literally found out about with like five minutes left in the media availability um and people loved it people loved that story and it was kind of just ours for like the next five days because no one could really talk to them about it right but you said all right so you just said two things that, that kind of struck me um Number one, you mentioned being in the Stephen F. Austin locker room and stumbling, use the term stumbling upon a player who almost died in a car accident. Um, and I found there are very few stumbling upon, like there's not really a stumbling upon because somehow you used whatever skills you, you know, you have or had to, to find out, like, how did you actually, what does that mean? You stumbled upon it. How did you actually find out what happened? Well, I've always found in tournament settings, especially with teams that I'm not super familiar with, which would be like Stephen F. Austin in that situation. I hadn't covered them that season. I didn't know coaches. Um, and, and for the most part, I do know a lot of assistant coaches and head coaches at different programs. So they're the ones that I'll often go to if I know them um, and ask mm-hmm. them about cool backstories or interesting things that no one knows about on their team. Um, and, and during the tournament though, when, when you're dealing with a lot of like the smaller schools and I always tell this, I get asked this by like younger reporters who are very overwhelmed by open locker rooms because so few programs do that during the year and teams that they've never covered and all of that. And I'm like, we'll talk to the media relations people, sports information directors, um, and the assistant coaches are always in there too. And sometimes there's also just staffers or trainers. I mean, some teams don't make them really available or they're just kind of hovering around. But I've always found like those are the people, especially the assistant coaches, they're the ones that recruited these kids. They're the ones that, you know, are so close to them. Um, and I found that they know a lot about their team that people don't know. Um, so I just try to talk to as many people as possible. I even ask players, um, about their teammates. Um, I, I was also in the locker room when, or I had Mercer beating Duke. Um, and that one was really interesting because, um, there were a couple of other reporters there that I knew were really good at digging around as well. And I was just, I was like, I'm going to make sure I don't miss anything. So I went like around to all of the players when there was something funny or an interesting anecdote. I got like three players on it in case it was like going to be a bigger thing. Their coach, Bob Hoffman, was kind of this like very folksy um, kind of goofy guy. And so I realized quickly that like a profile of him would do really well and people would be interested in that. So I was like working on like three or four different angles at one time. Um, and I was in there when like Coach K came in to congratulate the Mercer players, snapped a photo of that to share. Um, and people really enjoyed that and also made fun of that um, afterwards on social media. And so it's just kind of like I just scramble around and ask like a bunch of random questions. I, I don't know if that actually answers your question, but like just to make yeah. sure that like all of my bases are covered and then I'm not like missing this like incredible story that's in this locker room of people that I really didn't know well until like right then. Do you feel like you need to prepare? Like if you're covering the regional, let's just use an example. Bucknell is playing Michigan state in mm-hmm. the first round and um, it's in Detroit. Oh yeah. You're at that regional. Yep, uh, that's my site. It's mm-hmm. in Detroit. Right. Michigan state is a huge favorite, obviously in this game. Bucknell's a Patriot league team. Do you need to prepare ahead of time for Bucknell beating Michigan State? Like, do you, do you feel like there's a lot of, is it worth doing the groundwork into Bucknell before the game? So you have stuff on Bucknell in the, whatever, five in a hundred chance that they beat Michigan State. So it's interesting um, because I bet that there are people that do do things like that. Like, especially maybe if you look at your seed list, like, like, I had three straight years that I personally was present for a 14 over a three upset. So by the second and third year, I was sort of like, it was in the back of my head that that was likely. I mean, that was a number combination that I'd seen and we keep seeing. Um, and so like, I think you're, you're always prepared for it. Um, I would say the one time that I was legitimately surprised and totally didn't think anything was going to happen. Um, was the day, so Mercer beat Duke in the noon game. And the way that it, it is at these sites, um, and it's really hard to explain if you've never covered one, like there's four games going on that first day and it's just chaos because you're watching these games. You're trying to determine, especially the early ones, if they kind of go according to seed, like if there's anything newsworthy, what should you gather for the off day the next day? 
you're following along what's happening at all of the other sites that day on TVs in the corner. Um, and you're, you're tracking like, okay, what are trends that are happening? Like, did, are three 12 seeds going to beat fives this round? And, you know, is, is there a 15 Middle Tennessee State beating Michigan State? I wasn't at that site, but it was clear that that was a huge, huge story and the biggest upset. Um, so you're kind of trying to gauge all of that as it's happening. And so I just remember like when Mercer beat Duke, that was my first game of the day. It was a noon tip off. And so you're just thinking, mm-hmm. I was thinking at least nothing else today will matter. Like nothing. I had an eight, nine game. I had a one sixteen, and then, um, I'm forgetting the other seed, whatever would have been a, it was Tennessee. So it was a six eleven game. And right. I just remember thinking, okay, just, do as much as you can on Mercer, gather as much on Mercer, talk to their AD and their media relations people, um, you know, just figure out, like I ended up doing a story on how they decided to bus a bunch of player or students up um, for their round of 32 game. Because again, I was just trying to meet as many people as possible. And I talked to their athletic director, gave them my card, explained, you know, if there's anything interesting going on to call me. And so I was just like all in on Mercer. And I remember I was sitting courtside for the last game of the day, barely paying attention. And Coastal Carolina is keeping it close on Virginia, the number one seed. And I was just like, yeah. oh, my God, a 16 is going to beat a one. And I've been spending all day with the 14 seed. Like all of that's going to go to waste. <laughs> I'm going to have the biggest upset right. in college basketball. Um, and it didn't happen. But I that was the only time I've ever felt like, totally unprepared and would have been surprised like because most of the time you can feel it when you're covering a game and you can even if you're not super familiar you can make up ground but like to answer your original question i know a few coaches in the patriot league so i have talked to some coaches about bucknell so like i would be coming into that with a little bit of a background but um no i'm not like going into it with like spending six hours doing a ton of bucknell research in case that happens because I think a lot of the great stories involve the emotion and the the reaction to pulling off these upsets. And a lot of that stuff you just need to be really present for and take a lot of notes and talk to people as it's happening. Now, in your head, were you rooting for Coastal Carolina not to win that game because it would mess up your day? <laughs> it was it was really weird because, like, you know, it stayed close and you're like, this this can't this this isn't going to happen. This this can't happen. Um, and then I'm thinking. I have all this great stuff on Mercer. I want people to read it. I want people to like, I want to continue on this story. And then I'm like, I need to start paying attention to the game because I need to know who the stars are, what's happening. You know, so then you start watching. And of course, half of my brain is like, this would be amazing to be at the first 16 over a one. Like, this would be incredible. The other half's like, oh my God, but Virginia was a great story and this is just going to go to that narrative that people don't trust Virginia in the NCAA tournament and you've enjoyed covering them this season. And it's just like all of these conflicting ideas when there's like an upset of that magnitude going on. Um, so it would have been awesome to cover the first 16 over a one. Um, I know it's going to happen right. someday. I would love to be there. But yeah, at that night, like it was a 10 p.m. tip off and I was so excited about all the stuff I'd gathered on Mercer. I was probably not rooting for that to happen at that moment. Right. The world's biggest Mercer, University of Michigan educated Mercer fan for one <laughs> exactly. day. Well, there were, there were a lot of Mercer fans, the, I'll say. They were a blast. Right. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I had this conversation recently with somebody, and, and you're a good one to ask because you cover, you cover college football and you cover college basketball. And you touched on this about the assistant coaches. The the instinct of a reporter when you're covering college sports is to talk to the head coach. Um, you're doing a profile of the quarterback or the point guard. And, you, of course, you know, well, make sure you get a quote from the head coach. And I always feel like looking back kind of in hindsight of covering college sports, these guys don't really know the players that well, especially in football. Like the, the head coach of Nebraska doesn't really know the backup tight end that well. So he's going to give the quote, oh, he's a good kid and he's really rugged and blah, blah, blah. Is it, is it okay to buck convention and just say to yourself, you know what? These guys don't really know him that well. Or are, are there some requisite things you need to do in this business when you're reporting a story? Well, I definitely rely heavily on assistant coaches, especially the ones that recruited the kid um, or just spend the most time with them. But sometimes as you all know, and as I'm sure you've heard, there are a lot of college football programs that 
not a lot, but at least a handful that don't make assistant coaches available in season. And I think that ends up hurting the stories because you are losing people that are really tight with the players that you want to write about. Um, so like a lot of the access, um, roadblocks that I sometimes run into in college football don't exist in college basketball just because even the head coaches, like a smaller roster and a lot of these head coaches really do understand relationships with media and exposure and understanding, you know, when the spotlight is on their sport and being as helpful as possible when that is. And then if it's not directly on your sport, like being as helpful as possible to get a story out or to help get a story out. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I've written, I've written stories, player features, trend stories. I've written stories that don't quote the head coach. Um, Sometimes I've been asked to include them, but I think that like a lot of times the better and more descriptive stuff comes from assistants, parents. I mean, anyone at teammates, anyone else you can get. And like, for example, even in basketball, which like I think is very accessible. Um, Sometimes like you just don't need that much. Like I I just filed um, a Virginia story. It's going to run on Thursday. And there's a one line of quote from Tony Bennett. And I have quotes from coaches that played against Virginia this year. I have like quotes from current players, past players. It was all just better. And like you can get at stuff without having like a direct quote from the head coach. So I don't really stick to any rules. I mean, sometimes it's it's very obvious that you're going to need them. Um, like, especially let's say you have a quarter, a, a coach who's known as like a quarterback whisperer and you're writing about the quarterback, like you have to quote that person. Right. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think like the more creative you can get and as long as you can get like the right voices, um, I, I don't think like there needs to be like any hard and fast rules on that. And sometimes again, like the editor will ask for it, but other times, you know, they're, they're better off. They're, they're happier with just getting the better information from like a person who's more directly involved. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Casey Perlman, and I hate this podcast. Wait, what? It's boring. What? I don't care about sports writing. But your dad's a sports writer. And you smell like old leather and vinegar. But, but, but what about the 503 sports ad? This is an ad? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I love 503 sports. Bye. Me too, because 503 Sports is all about throwback. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning that special John Reeves Tampa Bay Bandits jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Casey Perlman, go to 503-sports.com, and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Do you prefer covering basketball or football? I get asked that a lot. And there's just, there's so many benefits to each that I'm really glad I get to do both because football, it's like, you can write, I remember it was during, um, I was still at USA Today, the Sochi Olympics were happening. A lot of my friends were at the Winter Olympics, but I was covering college basketball, so I wasn't. And like Nick Saban was talking about like that 10 second runoff rule in college football. And it was like the most dominant story in college sports. And this is like in the heart of like mid February, late February, leading into March madness. Mm -hmm. And it was this proposed theoretical rule change about hurry up offenses and Nick Saban's reaction. And I think that was when I just was like, anything about football matters so much. It's so 24 seven. It's so 365 days a year. Um, that it was just, it was like, I want to do more of that. Like, I want to be where people are reading and reacting and, and arguing and having thoughts about. Um, and so that was around the time where I was kind of just expanding and doing more college football. But, but the basketball, like I was saying, like this time of year, I love the tournament. I love finding those stories. I love the access, um, and, and the candid nature of these coaches and players. And it's, it's so fun for me that I love that I get to, also still have that it's so different from football it's so different than like covering a bowl game or covering the college football playoff um that like it just it, they're they're hard to compare because it's just like such a different process but it's fun to cover something that is everyone cares 12 months a year and then it's really covered really fun to cover something that everyone super cares about for like three weeks um and they can't get enough of it's it's right. kind of like the olympics i mean i've covered swimming at the 
last two summer Olympics. And it's like, it, it's the same sort of idea where it's just like the spotlight's on and, you know, all the groundwork, all the previous relationships you've had just help you really shine in that moment where everyone is just hyper-focused on it. It also kind of feels like summer camp. Don't you feel <laughs> yes. that way? I always felt like big events that go a while feel like, and it's like at the end, it's like, oh, we're all going to keep in touch. And then you kind of don't because you just, you're home from summer camp, but it's like a glorious three weeks of sitting in press boxes yeah. together and sort of talking to your, I just, I love that. I always love the sense of community. Like when I covered major league, but one thing I miss mainly writing books as opposed to covering a sport is, you know, showing up in Kansas city and seeing this guy and that woman. And then, then, then where, let's go out to dinner after. And there's a, I don't think most people realize this. The sense of community among writers is very, very yeah. strong. It, it is like the favorite part. My parents actually like understood that pretty quickly. So I remember like when I was going to like my second final four, they were just like, Oh, are you excited to see all your friends? And I was like, yes, I am. I am excited <laughs> to like have like right. dinners awesome. with like 15 people. Yes. Um, and it's always funny too, because everyone leaves the night of the title game at like different times. Cause you're, it's just whenever your deadline is, whatever you file. And it's always funny to me because you spend all like a month. Sometimes you have people with you at every site and you're spending all this time with people. And then everyone just kind of leaves and takes flights at different times. And you don't even say bye to people. It's so funny to me. You're just kind of like, okay, right. well, see you in like six months. Maybe I, w I was watching a class. I wasn't even going to ask you about this. And then I thought I haven't really talked about this with people. So I'm kind of interested. I don't remember who the coach was, but uh, there was an interview uh, the other day when some college basketball coach was being interviewed after a game and there was a woman TV reporter and either called her sugar or honey. And I wonder, you know, here we are, 2018, women reporters everywhere. The media is really sort of uh, it's significantly more diverse than it was when I was coming up in the, in the you know, mid 90s. Do you feel that ever? Do you ever feel that from coaches or from players, the sort of, if it, even if it's not, on, you know, not stated the, okay, honey, that's a cute question or, oh, thanks sugar for coming by. Like, do you ever sense that or is it totally a gone thing in your world? I've never sensed that or had that happen. Um, I do have a lot of theories tied to things like this though. Um, one is that the players that I've covered, they've grown up with female sports center anchors and women covering them mm -hmm. in high school. And like, it's never, ever been a thing. Like I've never had anything but respect from like all these college athletes I've covered, which is great. And pro athletes, when I've worked in different sports and covered different sports, like that's actually different because some of them, it is still like kind of a novelty to have like a woman asking them about sports. Mm -hmm. um, coaches for the most part also are great. I mean, you can tell sort of one thing that was really hard for me at first because I got my job as a national college basketball reporter at USA Today at, at um 23. So I was fighting mm -hmm. gender and age things. Like I was trying to get taken seriously and build relationships, but I was also really young. And you could tell at some point, like there's certain coaches that are like a little bit paternal towards me. Like they, they definitely probably put me in a box of like, oh, this is this. She's Nicole's around my daughter's age or my daughter-in-law or whatever. And so it's sort of, it's like friendly, um, and like paternal almost, but not in like a, oh, honey, sugar. Like it's not that type of way. I'm not sure if, it, if I'm making this sense. Like it's not insulting and they're not doing anything on purpose, but I think that it's almost more tied to the age difference than it is gender. Just about like, I think their mannerisms are similar to the way that they interact with like their kids or their nephew and niece. If that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Yeah, I understand. It was actually, I just looked it up. It was uh, Western Kentucky coach Rick mm -hmm. Stansberry. And he was being interviewed by Laura Britt. He said, honey, you understand those other two games have nothing to do with this game, no matter how much we beat them by. Ritz. I had, when I covered the Cape Cod Baseball League, um, I had a coach who yeah. I had, I, I got to pick, I mean, that was the greatest job ever. I just got to go to baseball games every day. And um, I remember I was doing a story and I interviewed one of the coaches I was basically asking his like best hitter was um, on a temp contract. And I was kind of trying to figure out if he was going to sign him to a permanent deal for the summer or not. So I asked him a bunch about that. And then, you know, we we're talking about the game. They won the game. And I think it was like a suicide squeeze or something to actually to literally win it. And so he starts going through, you know, the, the game and play and some other stuff. And then at the end of the interview, and I'll never forget it. He looks at me and he goes, did you understand everything I said? And I was just oh like. God. Yep. And I left. 
And then I got to my office. I was fuming. I was venting. I was like yelling to like my editors. I hadn't only, I'd only been there for like two weeks. That's what it bothered me so much that it was uh-huh. right off the bat with one of these 10 teams and coaches. And I just like, I want, I, I just was like, I wish I had said, you know, it's very basic. Like it's just baseball. Like, of course I know what you're talking about. Like blah, 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 blah. Or like had some smart alecky response. Um, and I'll never forget my editor, Bill Higgins. He goes, well, you don't ever have to cover a game of that team if you don't want to. And also you don't have to quote that guy. And I was like, great, I'm not going to. And everyone at the paper had right. my back and it was right. awesome. But yeah, and he actually ended that coach ended up saying something. Of course they won the championship. So I did have to cover them at the end of the summer. And he said something to me and he was like, I was making a joke. And I was like, no, it was incredibly insulting. And that's why I chose not to cover your games this season until I had to at the end. And he apologized. And I was just like, that's good. It was just, it's just amazing that people think like that these sports we cover are like rocket science and like our lady brains can't understand them. Crazy. Well, I love, I love the, you know, it's kind of the Cam Newton Mm -hmm. thing. Like of all the things in order see, we cover sports and in the context of covering sports, we will talk about the triangle offense and the complexities of the triangle offense, just as an example, but it's only complex in the world of sports. Like it's not a particularly difficult thing to understand compared to half the science experiments my 11-year-old son is doing at mm-hmm. school every day. It's only in the context of sports. And I think sometimes these guys think what they're doing is significantly more intelligent and complicated than it really right. is. And it's funny because I have friends who cover transportation or courts or, you know, true crime and all these other things that no one like gets mad at you if you don't have a background or like didn't do it before except sports. With this like hand in the dirt stuff, like right. my friend who covered transportation had never covered transportation before. She didn't know the engineering behind like a subway system and how it works or logistics or any of that. Right. And people just explain it to you. And some of the best sports reporters are people who don't like sports that much and don't care about all the intricacies. And you get people to tell your story, their stories to you. And it's just so funny that people take themselves so seriously. And I think part of it's just because. I guess it's all you're doing and thinking about. And so you do think it's super intricate or you're a fan and you think I know just as much as this person writing about it. So therefore they can't know this much or they must know less than me. I I don't even understand it, but it it is funny because it's like this stuff Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter. This is entertainment. This game was invented. Like these rules are not that complicated. Someone invented them for you to just play to entertain us. I love hearing you say that. So when I was at SI and, and since then too, John Wertheim and I was at SI, we used to have this, we would, we would call it like, uh, are you in on the joke? You know, like it's all a joke. Like you are in Michigan. You were flown to Michigan to write about a bunch of guys trying to throw a round object mm-hmm. into a rim. You know, I am writing a book about a bunch of guys throwing around what used to be a piece of pigskin wrapped in an oblong chair. Like it's almost like that perspective, realizing that it's all kind of a gag. Yeah is oddly empowering. Like it's the people who take it life and death, the writers who take a life and death who I actually think are missing out on sort of the joy. Yeah, of I, think, I think, you know that I think mean? that's part of what helps me have fun with it when there's a great game, because I mean, you see this, we all see this people complaining about a game going to overtime because of their deadline or something like that. And it's like, this is all fun. This is a game that was invented for entertainment. This is all bonus. And it's awesome when you get to write a, really in-depth human interest story about someone and give someone a reason to care who wins or loses or to root for a player or to not, or for someone like Kevin Love to use a platform that he has from a game that's to entertain us to talk about mental health. That stuff is awesome. But like when you're actually just covering a game, it's just a game. And it's so funny to me when people, especially sports writers, like act like you know, capital J journalists, how I refer to them sometimes. And I love journalism. I love talking about it. I love reporting and writing, but I'm never going to pretend like I'm like a war reporter. I'm not going to pretend like it, like what I'm doing is the most serious thing in the world. And I think that sometimes people conflate like wins and losses or like being on deadline for a sports game as like something that it's not. And I think then it does take away from the fun of just being like, that was an incredibly awesome game. I don't even know how I reacted when Chris Jenkins hit the shot to beat North Carolina. I know what I did when Marcus Page did, and I know I stood up, but I had no idea because I just like enjoyed it, reacted, like couldn't believe I saw this. And I feel like you would lose that if I was too stressed about right. deadline or like 
I don't know. Like, I, I just, I, I don't want to lose that. Like, it's a game. Right. It's entertaining. And it's for that, for us, too. You have a, uh, I, I, I've been reading your stuff, which I, I greatly enjoy. And I feel like you have a really interesting strength, which is um, you find nuggets of information. I mean, we alluded to this earlier, but you find nuggets of information and you're really good at it. I want, there are two stories I want to talk about here. Number one is um, the North, last year, North Carolina comes full circle. This time, the storybook ending, it's from uh, April 4th, 2017. So last year, your lead was um, he, he had hoped at the time that he was about to embark on a six-game stretch that would end with a backwards cap on his head and a piece of net stuck to his forehead. But Theo Pinson wasn't sure. After all, a lot can go wrong in between a dream and reality. So last month, at the start of this NCAA tournament, Pinson changed his phone screensaver to remind himself what was at stake. He used a photo of himself, well, a shell of himself, sitting in the locker room last year, minutes after Chris Jenkins' shot beat the buzzer, beat North Carolina, and delivered Villanova a national championship. Pinson wanted to look at that image every day and every night until he earned the right to erase it, until he earned the right to replace it with something better. Okay, how did you even find this out? Like, how did you find out what his phone screensaver was? So I had spent a lot of time around North Carolina last year. Um, I, I Throughout the regular season, kind of as much as anyone, because I was so fascinated by the idea of being driven by this one singular thing and trying so hard to just get back to mm-hmm. that game to like write something. And Theo mm-hmm. Pinson was one of my favorite from the run the year before. And he was just very charismatic, very candid. And I had this team in their opening round game in Greenville. And I was in that locker room. I'd done a few stories on, like they didn't have anyone transfer out in the past five years, which was very rare. Um, like less than a handful of teams had had that. They were in the very beginning, they were very open to talking about kind of this redemption tour that they were on. And then they got tired of those questions, but I was just around them a lot. And I was trying to figure out how exactly they were thinking about last season and, and the Chris Jenkins shot and how they weren't. Um, so I, I think I had mm-hmm. known already that he had had it as his background, but when you're in the post game locker room, especially when a team wins and everyone's happy, everyone's got their phones out and they're like, you know, getting 200 texts. And so you can see things like that. And so it was something that like came up because either I had already seen it in a previous in post game or he had his phone out in the moment. I can't remember right now. But I was just trying to ask everyone that I talked to that year about, you know, how they really processed the year before. And it was kind of they were able to do that because they had gotten what they wanted and what they'd worked for. And like there's later in that story, I'd talked to like Theo um, and another teammate had been talking about how rare it was that you actually get the chance to be in the exact same position that you failed at before and you get a chance to do it right. Mm -hmm. And so then I went back and talked to both of them about that conversation. So I was just, the way I structured that story was like just a bunch of little vignettes about what it felt like to do. And I just thought that that was really great. And um, I just could imagine, and I think anyone can imagine like looking at this really crappy moment on your phone every single time you look at it like 30 times a day. Yeah, it was a great story. And the other one that I I, I'm going to be using this in journalism classes for years, I really think. It's from 2015 when you were at USA Today also. <laughs> Jack Allen's Craigslist cat is almost like a dog. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you wrote this story. I want to read part of this. Uh, over the summer, Michigan State Center Jack Allen received a call from his roommate, tight end Paul Lang, seeking Allen's approval. Lang had found a cat on Craigslist and wanted to know if Allen thought they should get him. I'm like, why not, Allen said Wednesday. But he didn't tell me that. When we were supposed to come back to school for the summer, he wasn't coming back for three weeks. So Alan, Alan returned to their apartment alone. The place was filled with boxes. People had been using the space for storage during the summer. And then a person from Craigslist came by and dropped off a cat. It's me and this cat in the apartment for three weeks and boxes of stuff, Alan said. I did lose the cat for like five hours the first day. I called Paul and was like, the thing's gone. I'm sorry. Look for another one. A Craigslist. He's gone. Fortunately, Alan did not actually lose the cat, whose name is Bubbles. Okay. Here's what I love. I feel like this story buckles every convention of sports writing, which is this. There's really no news. Oh, no, there's no news. And there's really not even that much about. (laughs) No news. There's nothing about like, there's nothing about Michigan State's football team. I think you mentioned their record and they have an upcoming game. Literally, the entire story for USA Today is about Michigan State Center and his roommate getting a cat from Craigslist, which I just freaking love. And I wonder, 
How did you even get them to run this story? Yeah, well, so I what we did for the college football playoff is we had four colleges writers. So each of us got a team and we would go to the on-campus media availability. And Michigan State was terrific to deal with. And they would bring out like 10 players on offense, 10 players on defense, all the assistant coaches. So you just kind of bounce around the room. And, um, you know, I, I don't even know how he got started talking about pets, but he started to say he had a cat. And then, you know, naturally you're like, okay, so like, what's the name of the cat? Bubbles. Oh, that's kind of funny. Like, where's, how old's the cat? Like, where'd you get the cat? And then it's just this crazy story about Craigslist. And at this point I had football stories I was working on and I was like, this is not going to fit in in anything else. I, I, I actually think I did do a larger story on like, he had a wrestling background and, you know, had a great breakout season as a football player and all of that. And so I think I did do a separate like actual story. But this was just so funny. And I was just dying of laughter as he was telling this story that I was like, I need to write this up quickly. People will like it. And they did. And the best part is he loved it. So he was like tweeting me about it. And people were asking, they were like, we need a picture of the cat. We need a picture of the cat. So then he like was tweeting me and I was like, everyone really needs to see a picture of this cat. And he's like, okay, like I'm at I'm at class now. I will tweet you one in like two hours when I'm back. Like, I could get one from a roommate. I'm like, you don't have any pictures of your cat on your phone? Like, this is your animal. This is your pet. And he didn't. But then... This is bubbles, <laughs> damn it. And a couple, of, a couple of hours later, he did share one. And people... I, again, I think you just have to have fun with some of these stories. Like, that story doesn't work unless you, like, kind of take it too seriously, but not seriously at all at the same time. Yeah, it was really good and really funny. One more I want to ask you about. Uh, it's I'm taking back here, though, a little bit. 2013. Remembering aspiring sports journalist a year after Aurora shooting. And this was the movie theater shooting in Colorado. And you were how old were you in 2013? I was Nicole. 24. Man, so you were this is like a it's like a young written story. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned that for a reason. It, the lead is in death. Uh, Jessica Gawi is where she always wanted to be everywhere. All these years later, the little girl who grew up reading Oh, the Places You'll Go is scattered throughout the world. She's in Peru, Mexico, France, Greece, Spain, Nova Scotia, Vancouver, Denver, San Antonio, even Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the big house. Anytime a friend travels to a place Gowie loved or would have liked to have gone, Sandy Phillips puts some of her daughter's ashes in a baggie, puts a baggie in a drawstring bag, and pulls the ba- uh, and puts a bag in a white box. She ties a turquoise ribbon around the box and then adds a mustache sticker to it, a nod to Gowie's charity efforts for Movember and, uh, and the organization's facial hair theme. It's an attempt to make the process a little lighthearted. Usually that's not possible when a box contains your daughter's ashes. So I asked how old you were because it was a, um, it's a really maturely written story for a person in, in his or her early twenties. Um, like really maturely because those stories are easy. I feel like those stories are very easy to cheese up and to make them excessively emotional and to throw in way too many adjectives and adverbs and, um, what do you remember about that piece? How do you how how that even happened? That piece is still like the hardest story I've ever had to do. And the reason that mm-hmm. I ended up doing it was kind of happenstance. So my first year at USA Today, I was a digital producer. And so I was publishing stories, doing photo galleries. And I was in the office. And I had, I think at this, yeah, so the shooting was um was in the summer. It was right before the Summer Olympics. And I was transitioning. I had been moving towards being a reporter, but I was still doing like my digital roles. So I was in the office that day. It was like my second to last day before like I was off before the Olympics to like pack and get ready to go to London. And the shooting happened. And I remember I was aware of who Jessica Gawi on Twitter. She was Jessica Redfield was because she would pop up all the time. I mean, like all of my sports Twitter friends were like sports Twitter friends with her. And she was about my age. And so I was totally aware of her. And I just remember like that morning after, you know, when people, you know, when she was one of the first um, confirmed deaths of the shooting um, and and it kind of, you know, started trickling around on Twitter and I'd covered Michigan hockey. So I had followed, I was still following connected with a lot of hockey people and that was her great love. So I remember getting the assignment from my sports editor at the time, Mary Byrne. And she said, can you do something on, on her. Like, can you find other people she's freelanced for or blogged for? And she'd written this incredibly powerful blog post about just missing a shooting at a mall in Toronto. I think it was that summer or the year before. 
And she had all of this stuff just about like the fragility of life and death and, and all of this incredible stuff to pull from too. But that day I remember reaching out to people who knew her friends and family. And I talked to a couple people that were like kind of loosely tied to her, but she stuck in my, my head. And I was just, it was so hard to talk to people mm-hmm. and think about, Oh my God, she's like one year younger than me these nice things people are saying about her being at the start of her career and how passionate she was and talented. Like these are things someone would say about me. Like it was so eerie and, and scary and sad. And so I just always wanted to go back and revisit her and like really do her justice. So over that next, you know, I just, I followed, you know, her family members on Twitter and social media, and I was just kind of keeping up with them as the months passed. And then I reached out to her mom uh, early in this or maybe late spring, early in the summer. The story actually got held a little bit and it ran on the anniversary of the Aurora shooting. Um, but it was originally I, I went to San Antonio to spend some time with her parents and her friends. I think it was early in the summer. And I spent about two days with them, like the whole day. And I don't think her parents talked to anyone else. Um, I think they really like it was really hard. And I've never had someone have to tell me how they got a phone call from their their child's friend telling them that their child is not going to survive before. And like I, I was right. so nervous about that interview. How was I going to ask questions correctly? How was I going to be like, what if I was crying, which I did? I mean, how could you not? Um, it was just it was just such a hard experience. And then I remember like we all went out to dinner with her friends and her parents and they, they kind of the friends invite her parents out like, you know, once a month to just kind of share all these memories and all these people that came together through her. And I just, I was, I just wanted to do the story justice. So I worked so hard on it. I had um, a couple of different editor friends like read drafts before I finally filed it. And I knew as soon as her mom told me about um, all the different, the ashes and how she'd been giving them out to friends to take places, I asked her to show Mm -hmm. me, like how exactly she did it. And I just took a bunch of photos, took a bunch of notes. And I was like, I was just like, this is, this is it. I mean, this is someone who was so passionate about the world and about everything and traveled and moved to Colorado on her own and just, you know, wanted to be everywhere. Like this is how she is everywhere. And it's like the saddest and saddest way possible. And so as soon as she said, and kind of, we were talking about that and, um, you know, her relationship with the friends and all these different people who were doing this, I literally was just like, can you walk me through each step of how you do that? And I knew that that was where I wanted to begin. What's interesting. So a couple of weeks ago I had um, on this podcast, I had a guy named Keldy Ortiz, who is a, uh, a cops reporter in New York. And he was talking about having very little emotion when he reports on things, you know, he'll report on shootings and report on stabbings and rape and blah, blah, blah. And he said, he just needs to keep an emotional distance to sort of keep his sanity. And it sounds like with this story, you did the exact opposite. And I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's very normal. Is it, um, is it weird crying in front of people you're writing, even though obviously it is perfectly normal and acceptable and there's nothing wrong with it. Is it uncomfortable or weird crying in front of someone you're interviewing or getting teary or emotional? It was more like teary. They were like full on sobbing and it's, Mm -hmm uncomfortable because normally if someone's doing that you want to like give them a hug and pat them but in this situation you're like sitting like six feet away from them they're sitting on a couch together you have a recorder out like it's just this and you have to like ask a follow-up question while they're you know you give them time and and you're saying like no need you don't have to answer this if you don't want to you're you're trying to handle it as well as possible but it's that was the first time i'd ever had to ask people those types of questions and I talked to a couple of my friends who were Metro reporters at the Boston Globe when I was an intern there. And I remember them talking about like, we'd go out for drinks after, you know, a day of work and they would talk about how they had had to do their third story on like a funeral. And they had to literally knock on doors and ask people to tell them about their worst day of their life and, and try to memorialize and do justice to their children or their mother or their aunt or whoever. And I just remember telling them all the time, I can't believe you guys are doing this. Like, how are you doing this? Like, how are you, how do you go home? And they would just talk about how hard it was. And so I've always had so much respect for cops reporters and Metro reporters because of that. Like just having those conversations about what it was like for my friends at the time to do it. um, I think that, that you have to, and, and some of them ended up like they, 
got first jobs in that area and then had to switch beats because it was just, it was a lot to take home with them. Um, so I, I teared up. I was emotional. I told them how it, you know, how like I felt so similar in my career to her, you know, and that was part of the reason I was drawn to them, their family. And I think you just, you have to just be honest for, for those emotions and those feelings. But I do think having gone through that, I've done stories. I did a story on James Conner, who's now at the Steelers. And I did a story on him when he was at Pitt and he was um, coming back from after he had had cancer and he was in remission and talking to his mom, you know, she was crying and you're talking about like, you know, thinking your son's going to die and he has cancer and he's 20. And, you know, because I had had that experience, I feel like I was more, I, I don't know. I think you have to be very sympathetic and empathetic in those moments, but I just, I think the first time you're interviewing someone about something like literally life and death, it's, you don't know how you're going to react. And so I feel like because, you know, I did that, we went through that, we, you know, figured out the way through the interview and, um, and they opened up and were honest about all of this. Like, I, I feel like that taught me a lot about how to interact with people about hard things on and off the record. Um, if that makes any right. sense. I, um, I actually think. I thought about this a lot through the years. Like, um, when you're young and you get into journalism and especially sports journalism, you think it's super cool because whatever you get to interview athletes or tons of people reading your stuff or you get act, you know, you're going to sit courtside from NCAA tournament. And I do feel like as you do this more and more, it's the emotional intimacy that's really the gift of it all. And that somehow, because you and I have a credential or we work for this thing, you can sit across from these parents and they're going to tell you about their daughter who was killed, or you can sit across from someone whose mom just died of cancer and they will tell you the final breaths of, you know, about the final breaths of their mother's life. It's a real freaking treasure of journalism that people don't talk about that much. Yeah. I, I, I think think about that a lot because there are so many times that you talk to someone that you really don't know that well and they trust you. Mm -hmm. Like, Right off right. the bat, or even if you've known them for a couple of years, but you've never gone anywhere near like that in depth into their life, but they're trusting you to tell their story accurately and to portray it accurately. And it's just, it's amazing to me, especially because, because as a national reporter, a lot of times you're going places and you're not there every day. You're not, you're writing, you know, you're profiling people right. that you really only spend like a day or two with and you're not there all the time. And it's, Asking someone to, to, to ask yourself to make someone else uncomfortable enough, not uncomfortable to like open up about something really difficult is a lot. And I'm always so stunned and like appreciative when people do, even if it is people you've known for years and you want to be like, okay, here, like, are you willing to talk about this thing? Or someone gets diagnosed with something and then you, you know, it's just, it's, that doesn't get talked about enough because like you do need those relationships to get those. But there's a lot of time that like someone vouches for you. And so they decide I'm ready to tell my story and it's going to be with you. And you don't previously know them. And you're going to ask them like really hard questions about like the worst thing that they've ever gone through or the most embarrassing thing or a public humiliation or something that was great, whatever it is. And you're expecting and hoping that they'll be honest about it and be candid and it's amazing when they are because they don't have to be and they just they do it. Right. I agree with you 100 um, percent. I'm going to ask your final question on a lighter note. So I am uh, I'm working on my column this week for The Athletic about this subject. And since it will be it'll be out by the time this this podcast airs, I feel comfortable sort of I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a piece about what would happen if you put LeBron James on an NCAA basketball team. And I'm interviewing different coaches at different levels. What would happen if you had LeBron, the current LeBron on your roster? So here's my final question for you, Nicole. This year, Delaware State won two games. They were the worst team in Division One. They won two games. And the teams they beat were, actually, I don't even know some of these teams, Georgie and Court, and uh, they beat Coppin State. That was their only Division One win this year. They beat Coppin State. So they have one Division One win this year. If you put LeBron James on Delaware State, do they make the Final Four? They definitely make the NCAA tournament. Um, easily. easily. Um, I mean, probably. 
I, you think can they win a national championship? With- I think okay, that's the thing about like college basketball. One player can do that. Two, two definitely can. I mean, the UConn team that won the title a couple of years ago on the backs of Shabazz Napier and Ryan Boatwright, like that, or Kemba is the go-to example. Kemba Walker of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do a lot with one player, and when you're still talking about like the greatest on the planet. I mean, I think so, because a lot of times when like if you see like DeAndre Ayton at Arizona and he's terrific and he's like a beast and he's like a man child, um, he's still a freshman. Like to to have someone with like LeBron's basketball knowledge and his um, his photographic memory and like just everything he knows about the sport. I think definitely I think he does take Delaware State to the final four. What are the coaches saying? Um, uh, Generally, I think they say so I interviewed a. um, I interviewed a coach at Division Three, Division Three University of Laverne, and there was the worst team in basketball mm-hmm. this year. They they won two games at Division Three, and he said, "You give me LeBron, my team's making the NCAA tournament." And this is a horrible Division Three team. I think he's I probably think so. right. I mean, they don't go any farther. Yeah, it's a, I, and I'll tell you the best example I actually have of this, which I won't write about. So I went to University of Delaware, and years after I went there, Delaware got um, Elena mm-hmm. Deladon. She transferred from UConn to be closer to home. So this. Middling, mid-level program got one, you know, the best player in the country and made the Sweet 16. And Elena Deladon was not the, you know, the equivalent of LeBron James. So I do think, as you say, the power of one player can take you a lot farther than you might think. I think so. And now I'm going to think about this for the rest of the week. Thank you. (laughs) Well, listen, I, uh, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Second of all, you're a great writer and you're, I'm I'm being serious. I'm really into the nitty gritty and I love the way you seek out and find um, nuggets of information. I think you're one of the best I've seen to this. And, and uh, so I'm, I've, you've, made a, you've made a fan, if nothing else. Thank you. That's really a great compliment. I appreciate that. I want to thank today's guest, Nicole Auerbach, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yank. You can follow Nicole on Twitter, at Nicole Auerbach, and read her stuff on The Athletic. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit their website at www.503-sports.com. One can always listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on iTunes, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is from the great MC Wide Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.